And let me pray for our time in God's word together. Father, we, we pray that your light would shine through us. Father, we pray that you would help us to arise as a church because we recognize that your light will shine through us, Lord, to this world and as a testimony, Lord, to the angelic realms in a, in a way that cannot be done just by ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, that, that we would put the armor on. We pray that we would, Lord, have our, our, our minds and our hearts renewed as we study your word, Lord, that, that we would be able to arise as a church. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow as we study what a church is and what it's to be according to your word, that you would help us to excel in our love for one another, excel for our faithfulness as a church, excel in the ways that we would glorify you. So, Father, we pray that you would use the preaching of your word this morning for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was, the, it was July of 1961, and the 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team is reported to training camp. They were ready to start a brand new season. The previous season had not ended well. It ended unexpectedly when they squandered a fourth-quarter lead that lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. But they were ready for a new season. They were ready for this new training camp. They were ready for their coach to give them new techniques and innovative ideas to help take their game to the next level so that they can have that championship. But their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea for training camp. He began the very first day of training camp by saying, gentlemen, and holding up one of these, he said, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching a group of professional athletes who had been just minutes from winning a championship. But he started with, this is a football. He took nothing for granted. His team needed to be grounded in the fundamentals of the game. And so, through training camp, he went back to the very basics. He taught them, here is how you tackle. Here is how you block to the very basics of the game. When they opened the playbook, they started by reading the introduction on page one. In fact, at one point, the Pro Bowl wide receiver Max, uh, Max McGee said, quote, uh, coach, you could slow down a little. I think you're going too fast for us, making fun of his coach. But coach just smiled and continued to focus on the basics of the game. He was determined that his team would become the best in the league at the fundamentals that most people just took for granted. Without a firm grasp on the fundamentals, they could not progress to where they wanted to be as champions. My friends, it's the same with us. Just like with football, so it is with the church. We can, unless we understand the fundamentals of the word of God, we cannot be the church that God would desire us to be. We have to understand what God tells us in the very fundamentals of what it means to be as a church. This is why our elders have decided, and I think wisely decided, to spend the next three months in a new series. We finished Matthew. We're going to spend a new series called Church Basics 101 where we're going to spend each Sunday covering a different fundamental about what the Bible says that we are to be as God's church. 
In January, we're going to look at the character of the church. In February, we're going to look at the worship of the church. What, what do we do on Sunday mornings, and what does God say about that in his word? And then in March, we're going to look at the work that God has called us to do as a church. And this morning, we're going to start with the very basics. We're going to start with uh, this is a football type of a question that may seem obvious, right? But we need to make sure we understand what God says about these things. We need to ask this question of what is a church? We have to start there, right? What does God say a church is? And the second question really comes from that as well is if that's what a church is, then why should church be important to me and to you as Christians? See, we can't talk about the character of the church or the worship of the church or the work of the church unless we first know what is the church. Unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion about the church today, about what the church is or what God says about the church. But the church is not a bunch of people's ideas, right? It's God's idea. It's God's invention. It's God's initiative. It's God's passion. It's not some institution that a group of people came up with. The, the church is founded by God and is the only institution that God promised he would sustain forever. So let's study God's word together this morning as we seek to learn God's answer to what is a church. In fact, let's, let's open first to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be jumping around a little bit um, on, on this topic but I think Ephesians is maybe one of the best places to start. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then you get through the Romans and the letters after you pass, uh, pass Corinthians, then you have Galatians, and then Ephesians. If you want a good place to start learning about the church, one of the best places to learn is to read letters to these churches, like Ephesians. This is a book written to the church about what it means to be the church uh, for this church in Ephesus. It teaches us the Holy Spirit perspective on the church. And we're going to see here that according to, the, to, to God's word, the church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. Look there at Ephesians chapter 1 with me, where Paul talks about all the blessings. This is such a great chapter. It says, here's all you have in Christ. Look at what God has given you by the grace of Christ. Verse 3, we in him have every spiritual blessing. Verse 5, we in him are predestined for adoption. Verse 7, in him we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Verse 11, we in him have a spiritual inheritance. Verse 13, in him we were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. Now we have to stop here and ask a question. Who's the we? Right? Who is the we that's in Christ? Who is the we that has Christ as a head? We, we, we all the way home, right? Look over at Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Here's who the we is, it is or are. I'm not trying to share the right grammar there. But here who is the we, verse 22. And he put all things, God put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is head over the church. That's the we in Ephesians 1. That's the we who's here together. We are the church. If you're in Christ, if you are saved, God has saved you to be part of his church. And Paul goes on to, to point out then as we speak about God's gospel of salvation in Ephesians 2, which Pastor Bob referenced in the communion we see that, that although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, we were unable to save ourselves because of our sin. 
Ephesians 2, 9 and 10, God saved us. He did the work, and he gives us salvation as an offer of free and amazing grace. But Paul doesn't just stop there. Look as he continues in chapter 2, and look what salvation does. Look what salvation does in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're saved by grace. Now let's look at what it does. Therefore, because of what therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, in light of that salvation, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in this flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit and one spirit to the Father. And here's the capper. So then, what does this all mean? So then, because of this, you are no longer strangers and aliens. We're not separate anymore. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you guys see? So here's what we are in Christ because of the gospel. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just save us individually. It does. But the gospel saves us and creates us into a people, into the household of God. We, we are saved personally, but not just personally. We're also saved into fellowship with other people, people that consist of both Jew and Gentiles, people that are like us and people that are different from us different ages and different races and different sexes and different political affiliations and different er, personal preferences. We are all reconciled together into a spiritual family. And, and this is, it's funny, this is what the world wants, right? And yet the world is more divided than ever. And yet this is what the church is. And in fact, as we're going to look later what John Paul read for us in chapter 3, verse 10 in Ephesians, that this unity, this love, this church is how God displays his glory to both the earthly realms and the heavenly realms. You see, the church isn't a place. It's not this building, though we're thankful for it. But it's the people who meet in this building. There's one pastor that I am so regularly encouraged by and edified by and challenged by and, and, and what he does with his church, what he would do if he were here at our church, he says, he would not say, welcome to Oakhurst EV Free Church. He would say, welcome to the gathering of Oakhurst EV Free Church. And I like that. I think it's helpful. It's not wrong. Now, it's not wrong. I've said it for years. Welcome to Oakhurst EV Free Church. If someone says that, don't be critical of them, right? It's not wrong or sinful to say that. But I think it's so helpful to remind us of what the church is when we say, welcome to the gathering of Oakhurst E.B. Free Church. This place is the church. It's when the church is gathered here. That, that's what we're talking about. And so it's, 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 a, it's a people, but it's also the church is not just a place that we go to get our spiritual needs filled. 
right? Let's look at how Ephesians talks about the church later. Flip over a page to Ephesians chapter 5 and look how the church is described, what type of people it's described here in verses 25 through 27 where Paul writes, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, we're going to talk about that passage later, but what we see here is the church isn't just a place to get your spiritual experience. There's just a bunch of other people here this morning getting their spiritual experience. The church isn't a spiritual gas station or a spiritual grocery store. The church is Jesus' bride. It's a group of people that, that Jesus loves, that he loves so much that he purchased with his own blood to make them part of his family and yours. See, the point we get here is the church is not a place. It's not a building. It's not a place to get your spiritual service. It's not a place just for your individual Christian experience. The church is a people. It's a blood-bought people of God. It's God's family that you, if you're a Christian, have been brought into. And when we remember that the church is not a place but a people, it helps us to remember sometimes what's really important and what's not so important. Because let's be honest, sometimes all of us at one time or another can get frustrated with the church, right? Or the church as a whole or a particular church that you're in, we can get frustrated with that. Maybe it's the music. The music just isn't the caliber I, I, I would like to be able to worship God, right? Or maybe it's, it's, it's that the leadership isn't promoting the type of activities that I want to be involved in. Or maybe it's some other frustration that you have with the church, and so we can get bitter about the church. We can, get, we can get sour about the church. We can even leave the church or hop from church to church to church. But see, the problem is, is we have forgotten that the church isn't a place. It's a people. It's not a place for music. It's not a place for activities. This is not a place at all. It's the blood-bought people of Christ. And, and what does it say about our love for Jesus when, when our love for his people, when we create division and discontentment and leave church after church because of these other things. See, we need to remember that church is, is the people. And when we realize that, we recognize that these people are weak. These people are fallible. These people are sinners, right? I, I do the, I, I'm one of the ones who does the membership class for our church. And in all the years I've done the membership class, I've never filled out a name tag that says Jesus Christ right? No, none of our, none of, no, one, no member of our church is perfect in their sanctification. No member of our church is omnipotent in all their abilities. No member of our church has no faults at all because we're all people. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our faults. We all have our sins. The, 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 every member of his church is, is needing to grow in grace still. The, the leaders of the various ministries of the church are still people who need to grow in grace. The participants of various ministries in this church are people who need to grow in grace. The, the, the leadership of this church, of the elders and deacons and deaconesses are, are still people who need to grow in grace. So when the church, church, right, fails to meet your expectations, 
maybe you need to reevaluate your expectations. We need to, we, maybe you need to remember that, that when you feel like the church is failing you, that really you're feeling like people are failing you. And when you feel like that, maybe you need to realize that those are people who need you to help them. Those are people that need you to encourage them. Those are people that need you to come alongside them. Those are people that you need to pray for them. Those are people that you need to be patient with them. Kind of like I'm sure you would hope people would be with you. Right? I mean, just think about a family. Think about your parents or your siblings or your children. When, When your family doesn't meet your expectations, do you throw out your family and get a new one? I hope not. Right? I I hope you're patient with them. I hope you love them. I hope, though, sometimes you are just, you can pull your hair out, you're so frustrated at them, you bear with them, and you work with them, and you encourage them. If it's like that with your family, why wouldn't it be like that with God's family? And so let's think, let's think about these times. When when you're frustrated with the church, start thinking, how How can you and I personally start to be more loving and more patient with the people in this church? Because that's what it's about. And yes, there's people with different opinions. And yes, there's people with with different preferences. Yes, there's people who don't meet your expectations. Yes, there's people who will even sin against you. But how, how can you be more patient and loving with them? Because the church isn't a place, it's a people. But there's more the Bible says about this people. It's not just a people, it's an assembled people, not just individual peoples. Church wanted to make sure I got that right for the bulletin. Did you, is that English right? Yes, I did that on purpose. An assembled people, not individual peoples. Turn back to uh, Matthew Matthew chapter 16. You're saying, Craig, I thought we just finished Matthew last week. I know, we're back. Um, Turn back to Matthew chapter 16. First book of the New Testament. And we see here in Matthew 16 the very first mention of the word church in the New Testament. When Jesus here is the one who initiates and founds the church. And by doing so, he's telling us what the church is and what the church does. So look at Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to start at verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. uh, uh, Matthew tells us this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what, who do people say the Son of Man is? You see, Jesus is asking for a what and a who here. He's one question, but really two. He's asking, what is the right confession about Jesus, about him, the Son of Man? That's what Jesus calls himself. What is the right doctrine, the right confession, the right gospel about who Jesus is, and who of you know it? Right? That's what he's implicitly asking. Who of you know the right truth about who Jesus is? Of course, Peter always has something to say. So look at verses 14 through 17. And some of them say, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Peter answers, and Jesus says he speaks for the Father in heaven. Jesus speaks for heaven, and what does he say about Peter's answer? Peter has the right answer, right? Jesus is saying on behalf of heaven, Peter's confession is the true identity. It is the right confession of who Jesus is. And then look at verse 18. And I tell you, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here is Jesus' foundation of the church on which he said he will build on, uh, he's going to build on this rock. Okay, well, what's the rock? As we covered this and we went through uh, Matthew, the Roman Catholic Church says that Peter is the rock because he's the first pope. That's what Jesus is doing here. The reformers pushed back against the, the Catholic Church and said, no, 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 no. It's, it's Peter's confession that must be the rock. Well, that's, that's different theologies that are being argued, but let's actually look what Jesus says, shall we? What does Jesus say in the text? Well, we'll look. In, in fact, if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version translation, that they want to help you out. There's an interesting nuance that's hard to get from Greek to English. And so as English translators, they put a little footnote there that says, quote, the words for Peter and rock sound similar, unquote. So Jesus is making a word play here. Jesus is saying, you, Peter, are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I mean, from the text, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about Peter as the rock. But that doesn't mean that Peter's the first pope. Jesus says nothing about the Pope here. In fact, why does Jesus say Peter's the rock? That's what's the most important, right? Peter is the rock, but why is he the rock? Because he has the right confession, right? The rock is Peter, the right confessing confessor with the right gospel confession. Do you get that? No, okay. The rock is Peter. He is the right confessor, the right confessing confessor with the right confession. That's what the church is built on. And historically, that's been the difference between a true church and a false church. So if you, if you move from Oakhurst and if you're looking for a new church and you want to know what is, what is a church and what is something that calls itself a church that Jesus would never recognize as a church, a true church versus a false church, well, Jesus lays it out right here. And historically, it's been taken that the church is the right gospel confessor's with the right gospel confession. That's what's always been recognized. And so if you want to know, is this a, what's a true church and what's a false church? I'm not saying is this a, a healthy church or is this the best church for you to be in or is this a church that's ordered by the Bible? Those are all additional questions. Is this a true church or a false church? Should you associate with them as brothers and sisters in Christ or not? It all comes down to the gospel. It all comes down to the right confession. Does the church have the right preaching of the gospel through the right preaching of God's word? Do they profess the gospel? That's the right confession. Is it the true gospel? And secondly, do they have the right practice of the gospel? Do they not just, just give lip service to the gospel, but do they actually practice the gospel, which is often seen in the administration of baptism and communion? Do they actually practice the gospel of the life of the church through baptism and communion? That's what creates the right confessors. That's the difference between a true church that Jesus is founding and a false one here. Now, but Jesus goes on from there. Look, look how Jesus builds his church. That's important for us, right? We say, what is a church? How do I understand a church? Well, look how Jesus builds this church on Peter's confession. Look at verse 19, where Jesus says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus says he's giving Peter these keys, these keys to heaven. I mean, think about it. What do keys do, right? Keys, if I have a bunch of keys on my key ring, they open and shut, or they lock and they unlock thing, right? It, 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 when you're house-sitting, or not your house, when you're, when you're gone on vacation, that, that, that 
no one's able to get in your house, at least hopefully, right? Because they don't have a key, except for maybe the person that you're letting house sit for you, and you have granted them admission to that house because of giving them the key. That's, about, that's how keys work, but it's interesting. Jesus says that these keys don't lock and unlock, but these keys do what? Look there in 19. These keys bind and loose. Bind is a word for sticking together. These keys stick things together. It's like gluey keys or tapey keys. I don't know. They, they stick things together or they loose or they unstick things apart, right? It's nail polish remover keys. They, they bind things together or they loose things apart. Well, okay. What do these keys stick together or loose apart? Well, what's the context of the passage? It's people, Right? It's people who are the right confessors with the right confession who are bound together as the church. That's what a church is. It's these people that are bound together. God builds his church, not just by saving individual Christians all over the world and just scattering them and they just do their own little things. But Jesus says a church is what he's doing by sticking those gospel confessors together through their admittance into the church. That's what baptism is about. That's what church membership's about. But it's also the church loosing people from the church. It's, it's loosing from the affirmation admittance of the church, those people without the right gospel confession. That's what church discipline is about. And, and, and so just as Jesus speaks for the Father in heaven, I speak for the Father in heaven, Jesus says, and Peter has the right confession, and, and Jesus binds Peter to this, this assembly of people that Jesus is building, Jesus gives that same authority to Peter and the apostles to do the same thing in binding people together to build his church. They speak for heaven. They represent the realities of heaven. They don't actually create the people. They just speak for heaven and what creates the people and marking off those people of God through things like admission and exclusion from the church. But here's the problem. Peter and the apostles, they all dead, right? They're, they're gone. And so what does that mean? Who speaks for heaven now? Who, who binds and looses now? How is the church built today? Well, flip over a page to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 through 19, Jesus talks about confronting a fellow Christian who's in unrepentant sin. If they refuse to repent, verse 17 says they were to eventually take the matter to the church. And if they still refuse to, re to repent, the church is to treat the person like a Gentile or a tax collector. They're to treat them like an unbeliever who needs saving. Now, here's what's important. Look at what Jesus says the church, the local church is doing when they act in removing someone from the local church fellowship of believers. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Huh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? I feel like we just read that because we did. Right back in chapter 16, we just in 19, we read that that's what Peter was given as the authority of the keys of the kingdom. And so we see that, that, that this church is that the local church now is the one that's given that authority to build the church, to bind and to loose. And who is this church that acts in this authority to bind and loose? Look at the rest of the passage, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Who are the two and three? This is about saying you can't have a prayer service by yourself, right? God still hears your prayers. 
This two and three in the context of the passage are the picture of the local church who have been involved in the discipline process. It's the gathering of the assembled church in Jesus' name in a local assembly of believers to, to, to enact this binding and loosing. This is not talking about universal church discipline, right? Where the church on all of earth, on all of earth gathers for this assembly. No, it's talking about a local church doing discipline. That's where Jesus is with them. And so here in Matthew 18, Jesus describes this, this local gathering of believers as the ones with the keys of the kingdom. They have the authority to bind and loose from the Christian assembly. So let me put all this together for us. If you're a little lost, I'm going to try to back up and put this together. See, a church is not just a scattered group of individuals. Yes, a church is people, but it's not just people who are just disconnected from each other. In Jesus' mind, what he's building is a church, a church is a gathered and an assembled group, a visibly bound together and assembled group that gathers in Jesus' name. That's what he's describing as a church. Now, now some people would talk about this theological difference between the universal church and the local church, that the universal church is the gathering or is the, is the, the representation of every saved person on earth and we'd have to say in heaven, right? Every saved person is part of the universal church. And that's a good theological category. But, and, and they would say that the local church is like what we're doing today, people who gather together. Here's the problem that I struggle with that. The Bible doesn't often make that distinction. The, the, theologians try to make that distinction. But the Bible doesn't say, you know, I will build my universal church or local church. He doesn't, he doesn't say it's all one thing he's describing. It's all different pictures of the one thing, but one thing. I think a better description is that every Christian on earth is part of the church, but they're part of the church in an invisible way, right? You can almost call it an invisible church. That every Christian, if you're saved, you're a part of the church, but it's hard to tell who's actually part of it, right? It makes sense. God doesn't give you a giant cross tattoo on the middle of your head when you're saved, right? Oh, you got a cross tattoo, you're a Christian, right? He doesn't do that, right? I mean, there are people who even claim to be Christians, but really aren't. I mean, Hitler himself claimed Christianity, and clearly by his life, he clearly was not a Christian. And so it's, all, it's invisible. How do you tell? What, what is the, this invisible? How do you know who's a Christian? How does the invisible become visible? Through the binding together that Jesus is talking about through the binding together of the assembly of the local church. The local church is what makes the invisible visible. Let me say that again. That, that's what's important here. The local church is what makes the invisible visible. And that's what we see throughout the New Testament, that kind of description. When it comes to doctrine and theology, that, that, that sometimes the Bible does talk about this church of everybody as a whole, this invisible church. It's a good theological concept I know that there's this truth about this church of everyone who is saved in the world. But every time the Bible talks about the actual practice of the church and the practical nature of the church and of what it looks like for you as a Christian to be part of the church in a visible, tangible way, it's always talking about a local gathering assembly of believers. It's the letters to the church in Ephesus and to the church in Galatia. It talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 that, that, that the assembled church is supposed to do this discipline of removing this immoral, unrepentant member. You know, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 11, have you ever noticed that, that he's, Paul is, is, is admonishing them because when they practice the Lord's Supper, it's supposed to be a family gathering 
which means that if the church isn't there, they should not be taking communion. He tells, I mean, if we want to do communion according to the Bible, that's what he says, that they're supposed to wait until everybody's there, wait till the church is gathered, then, then you can take communion. You see, none of these things make sense if we're just talking about this theological concept of the universal church. The universal church does not practice admission, does not practice discipline. Could you imagine how many times we'd take communion if we have to wait till the entire church universal got together before we could take communion? That may be a long time, right? It, it, It only makes sense if the church is a distinct and visible group assembled as a local church. See, that's the point here. The church is not just individual peoples, it's an assembled people. The church is not just an invisible and universal entity of isolated individual Christians. The local church is where the invisible is made visible, where Christians are bound together in membership and assembled together in a body of worship. So so what's the difference between what we're doing this morning and what we're gathering as the Oakhurst TV Free Church and someone who says, I just do church by by doing church in my car. And and I I listen to worship music and I'll even listen to John MacArthur. And and I I do church in my car. You You see the difference there? There's no assembly in the car. There's no gathering together in the car. There's no binding together that Jesus talks about. There's no accountability in the car. There's no church discipline. The car's not going to kick you out if you start living unrepentant lives and, and, and forsaking Jesus. There's no baptism in the car. That'd be, that'd be tough, right? There's no communion in the car. There's no loving other Christians in the car, which is an evidence of our salvation. That's why when I was a youth pastor, one of the things I really tried to drive into the heads of of, of our young adults is that when they left for college or they left for work, that one of the most important things they could do as a Christian is to find a local church. And not just find a local church, but commit themselves to a local church. Most churches have something like membership or whatever it is that they're committed to the church and the church is committed to them. Because that, that's, that is what, what we are meant to be as a Christian. That's how we grow as a Christian. Being united to the body of Christ is, is not, does not just mean that we are united to every Christian invisibly. It's true. It's true. We, we do are united to everybody. But it means that that, that that unity we have with everybody, all Christians, is meant to take on living and breathing existence by our commitments to a distinct group of people in the local church. You and I can't gather with invisible people. You and I, we need to gather in real life with real visible people that we commit to in real life. You and I can't practice love and joy and peace and patience and kindness to invisible people. No, we demonstrate the way we love by, by committing to people to love them. And honestly, we see love when they don't deserve our love when they fail us and they frustrate us and they sin against us and we love them anyways. That's how we demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. See, we demonstrate to the world that I have met Jesus and he saved me and he changed my life because I memorized some Bible verses. Can you do that? You probably can. Yeah, okay. You're you're not going to demonstrate to the world because you've memorized Bible verses that Jesus changed your life. You know what's going to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is changing you and has changed you? is by committing yourselves to a group of people that there's no reason in the world that you would commit to. And you love them through thick and thin. 
and you love them despite being hurt, and you love them despite being sinned against, and you love them because Jesus loves you, that shows something radically different that God has done in your life. Together, we display the gospel in that way in ways that we can't individually. I like how one pastor challenges his congregation with this, that, that say, oh, I'm just, I could just be a member of the universal church, and I just love all Christians. He says this, if your, go- if your goal is to love all Christians, let me suggest working towards that goal by first committing to a concrete group of real Christians with all their foibles and follies. Commit to them through thick and thin for 80 years. Then come back, and we'll talk about how you're doing in loving all Christians everywhere. We can talk about loving Christians. It's another thing to actually commit and love them, love a distinct group. And, and this starts to, to get on our point of the second point, right? We see what the church is, and it's kind of bleeding over to why is it so important? Why is the church so important for us as Christians? Let's look at three things, why the church is so important for me and for you as Christians. First, the church is important because of who it depicts, who it depicts. Flip over to Acts. If you're in Matthew, flip a couple books over to Acts. And look at chapter 9 with me, Acts chapter 9. And we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 5. We see Saul, before he became Paul, as he was persecuting the church. And in verse 1, Luke writes, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. You know, it's interesting that when Saul, when Jesus speaks to Saul, he says, why are you persecuting the church? No, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so closely identified with the church that that Paul's persecution of the church is persecution of him. And why does he so closely identify with the church? Well, look at how Jesus describes the church. We already looked at Ephesians 5, right? In Ephesians 5, that that, that the church is the bride of Christ. Just think about that image. If you're a husband here, do you remember the very first time you saw your bride on your wedding day? Do you remember? I remember I was standing right about here, and Amanda was right back there. And I remember when she came into focus through those doors, and it was like nothing else mattered. Nothing else. Everything else was blurry. All that mattered was her. My friends, that's how Jesus feels about his church. That's how much Christ loves his church, that he continues to love and to work and to cleanse and to prepare us for eternity. In fact, later in Ephesians 5, Paul quotes from Genesis 2 about marriage and said that marriage is actually not an end in itself. Marriage is meant to picture Christ and the church. I mean, just think about this for a second. Why did God invent things like romance and marriage and the undying love between a man and a woman? It's not so that you could be married. It's so that through these things, we get a small picture of the amazing love that Jesus has for those he died to save. But that's not the only metaphor that that Jesus used to show how important the church is to him. The church is so important to Jesus that he also calls the church his temple, his temple. Turn back to Ephesians. Ephesians 
In chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, we see that, 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 that we're called the temple. And in fact, I should just read it instead of just telling you what it says. Where in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, as a church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This, you may say, oh, yeah, yeah, I learned that. I, I know I'm the temp- we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Got it. But just think for a moment. Take a step back and think about the whole Bible storyline and think about what it means for God to say that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so what we see is that, that back in the Garden of Eden, that God dwelt with Adam and Eve, right? He dwelt with them. How did he dwell, dwell with them? Visibly. Right there. I mean, I don't even, I can't even imagine where it talks about God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. I have no category to imagine that, right? He's visibly there in the garden. And then after our first parents sinned and they were, they were, they were, they were kicked out of paradise, that, 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 that relationship with God was separated. But God wasn't done with his people. He chose Abraham. And out of Abraham, he brought about the nation Israel so that Israel could become a light to the nations. And God dwelt with his people Israel. How did God dwell with his people Israel? First in the wilderness, he dwelt in the tabernacle. And then after Solomon's construction, he dwelt in the temple. That's where this temple language comes from. The temple was so important in the Old Testament because it was a picture and a reminder of God dwelling with them, that God has a special relationship with them. That relation with Adam and Eve has been restored through the worship in the temple. But in Ezekiel, we see that God abandons his temple, and it was subsequently destroyed. But God was still not done with his people because the New Testament opens by telling us that God the Son took on flesh and he dwelt. That word could be used in the Old Testament to be tabernacled. Jesus dwelt, he tabernacled, templed among us. That was God with us. To, to, to have a relationship with us, that God left heaven to come and dwell with us. In fact, if you are here this morning as a non-Christian, I want to say welcome, that we are so glad that you are here with us this morning. See, the story of the Bible that we've been discussing is the story about God taking the initiative to be in relationship with you because God loves you. See, the problem is, like Adam and Eve, we have rebelled against the God who created us. We did not live for him. We did not worship him. We did not honor him. We lived for ourselves. That's what the Bible calls sin, and that sin has separated us from our relationship with God. But God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be God with us. That's what we celebrated at Christmas, right? He's Emmanuel. Jesus came, and he came to be with us and to die on the cross for our sins, in our place, as our substitute, so that our sins would be forgiven and we could have our, a, that right relationship with God, eternal life now and forever in heaven. And God offers this to you as a free gift of grace if you would repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done to purchase that eternal life for you. If you are interested and want to know about this, more about this God who loves you, more about how to have a relationship with this God, please don't leave this morning without talking to someone. Talk to, 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 to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back afterwards. I would love to talk to you and tell you about this God who loves you and who offers you this free gift of eternal life. 
But as we continue with the story of the Bible and the temple, it's interesting. We, we see, though, that Jesus isn't here anymore, at least not physically, right? He's ascended to heaven. So now where is God's dwelling place on earth? Well, Ephesians 2 says it's in us. God now dwells in us, his people. And for time's sake, I'm not going to turn there, but I, I wish we had time. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it's interesting. It says that, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the you there from the context of the passage says that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That each of us is to flee from sexual immorality because we are the temple of this Holy Spirit. That, that no matter where we go, no matter what part of the world, no matter how lonely we feel, that God is with us because we each are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only way 1 Corinthians talks about the temple of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but not in the context of individually, but in the context of building up God's church. That though he who destroys God's church brings upon wrath for himself because the church is the temple. The gathering of God's people altogether is the, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, we individually... As temples of the Holy Spirit are meant to be what 1 Peter calls living stones to be part of this greater picture of God's dwelling place in the church. You see, if you are saved, you have a relationship with God where you can worship God in any time, in any place, in anywhere. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But yet at the same time, there is a way that God says that he manifests his presence, that he dwells with us in a special way as we gather together as we gather corporately, as we love one another together that you can't experience when you're just on your own. We individually, our temples of the Holy Spirit, are meant to be part of the greater temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the local church. That's how important it is to Jesus. That it's his bride. It's his dwelling place. And then we, also, we could also see in 1 Corinthians that it's his body, that the church is body. In fact, um, turn there real quick. We'll just do that real quick. I know, laugh at me all you want. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians, look at tw just 12, it's so good. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you want to turn there, I, I can read it for us. This is just so amazing, I'm not going to read the whole section, but Jesus talks about how the, the church is his body. I'm sure that the, this is going to be brought out in the rest of our sermon series, but look at how the section ends in verse 27, where it says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we are the body all together. We are individual members of a greater body together. It's not just a, it's just not a theological concept, right? We're not just a, uh, I, I know I'm theologically part of the body. Or I just have an invisible name tag. I'm the pancreas, right? That, that, that Jesus says that, he says, or Paul says there's a way that we can see that we are a member. We're not just theologically a member. I'm practically a member of the body. How do you become a member of the body? Well, he, he just explained that. If you read later what, what happened before, it means to be interconnected with other Christians. What does it mean to be a member of the body? It means to be so connected that you can't say, I don't need you, that, that we care for one another, that we suffer together, that we rejoice together, that our lives are so interwoven and bound, bound together because of our commitment we've made to each other and the local church. That's how important the, the church is to Jesus. It's his bride. It's his temple. It's his body. And as his bride, his temple, his body, the church is so important because as those things of what it displays. Let's close in one last verse. Turn to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians chapter 3, where John Paul read for us, thankfully, earlier. Or he, as he read, Paul was given this gospel ministry of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. But look at the purpose that, that he was to preach this. Look at verse 10. 
chapter 3, verse 10. So that, he preached the gospel so that, the purpose of all this was so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you see what the church does? Do you see why it's important to be part of the church? you see what, what it's meant to be? It's because of what it displays. The church displays the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel. The church is not a secondary matter for Christians. The church is a gospel matter for Christians because it displays the glory of God in the gospel. I, I remember when I was looking to get engaged to Amanda and I went to go see Cindy Ratzloff and to, get a, to get a ring. And I said, Cindy, here's how much I've got in my savings. What does it get me? And she brought, she brought out a diamond, and it was, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous, and I was, I was so excited. But you know what? It, became almost, it was almost like it became more beautiful when Cindy, that master jeweler, put it in the right setting, right? When she put it in the right setting where it would show off all of its beauty. My friends, that's what the church does. The diamond is the gospel. It in itself is glorious. It's beautiful. But we as the church are the gold prongs that display the glory of the gospel for all to see in all of its, all of its radiance. We display the glory of the gospel as we gather together to worship because of the gospel that saved us. We display the gospel as we celebrate the gospel, as we sing about the gospel, as we remember the gospel in communion, as we preach the gospel in the preaching of God's word. We, 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 we highlight the gospel as we love one another. Not because the, the rest of the people in the church deserve it. They often don't. I often don't. But we love them because God loved us in the gospel. And it displays that to the world and to the heavenly realms. Do you see why the church is so important? The church is important to you because Jesus is important. The church is important for a Christian only if Jesus is important for the Christian. If you love Jesus, then you'll love the church because he identifies with it. It's his bride, his body, his temple. If you're thankful for the gospel and what God has done to save you, then you'll love the church, its people, because that's what displays that gospel to the world. My friends, this is a football. This is the church as God has described in his word. The only question that remains is, what are you going to do? Are you going to get into the game or not? How are you going to respond to what God has said about his church? Maybe for you, it's just starting to make church a little bit more of a priority. You, you come, you don't, I don't know. But you start. maybe you need to start making the church as much of a priority for you as it is for God that you claim to love and adore. It's intentional about being alert and here for worship on Sunday, which, let's be honest, for, for most of us, that probably means being intentional about how we spend our Saturday nights so that we can be intentional and alert on Saturday morning. And we're going to be looking at what we do on Sunday mornings more and more, and how do we do that as a church in, in, the, in the coming series? Or maybe you're faithful for worship service, but maybe it's more of devoting this Lord's Day to, to glorifying God through learning his word. Maybe that means that you come to church at 10 o'clock, but maybe it's time to come a little earlier to Sunday school. There's a couple great classes to learn more about how do we be the church together. Don's class is an excellent class downstairs. It's talking about the women of the Old Testament, these faithful saints as examples. 
In the same way, my class is going to be talking upstairs, and we're covering, actually, not planned, but it happens, through the doctrine of the church. We're starting a new series next week. Either class, we'd love to have you next week. Or, or maybe it's something else. Maybe by getting in the game, maybe it means that it's time for you to join the church in membership. You don't want to just be a visitor to Oakers, of the Oakers DV Free Church. Maybe you don't want to just be one who gathers with those who are the Oakers DV Free Church. Maybe you want to become part of the gathering of the Oakers DV Free Church by doing what Jesus talked about, by being binding yourself together to that church, and that's what we call membership. We'll, we'll be looking at the importance of membership later in the series, but we had some date switches, so unfortunately, the, the, the sermon on membership is after the membership class, but what can you do? But you know what? I'd love to invite you to the membership class. If you're interested, or even if you're kind of interested, but maybe not interested, come to the membership class. Come find out more about our church. Come find out more about what membership is. And, there, and I'm not going to pressure you at all if, if you're saying, I, I, I found all this out and I still don't want to become a member. God bless you, right? That's, that's fine. But, but come join us. Come, come sign up with Steve or myself. We'd love to have you in, in, as we talk about membership. Or maybe you're needing to start to do the work of the church. We're going to talk more in March about what that is, the work of the church and serving and praying and edifying and evangelism and missions. But we don't got to wait for March, do we? We can start that work right now. If the church is where God is glorified, let's do the work in the church to glorify God. January is a great time to jump into ministry. Ministries are starting back up and our need of volunteers. It's a great time to jump into ministry. Or maybe that there's new ministries to start. Maybe you see a need of how we can edify the people of the church or how so important. How, where are there places that are being not reached at all by the gospel in our community that we can start ministry and doing? And maybe that's a great time to start, start, one of those, start, start some sort of ministry. Maybe it's time to jump into some of these Bible studies that are starting back up and, and to start being, doing the work of the church by loving one another and edifying one another and sharing your lives with one another. Or maybe it's just taking this new year to look for those new opportunities to be intentional with the gospel with your friends and neighbors and relatives. Whatever it is, let's look and say, how do we get in the game and be the church that God has called us to be? This is the football. The clarity that came from that basic fundamentals from Coach Lombardi led the 1961 Packers to beat the New York Giants 37-0 to win their NFL championship. In fact, Coach Lombardi won five NFL championships in the next seven years, and he never coached a team with a losing record because he didn't forget the fundamentals. We need to experience the same type of spiritual victory as a church. So let's remember the fundamentals. Let's remember what the church is and why the church is so important. It's so important to God, so let us be so important to us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we would be stirred up by way of reminder of these important truths from your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to arise, to excel still more in our love for you, in our love for one another, in our love for the lost. And Father, we pray that you'd use that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.